Now, as we were completing the show, Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad were blaming each other for a missile strike on a hospital in Gaza that's killed at least 500 people. That's in addition to the estimated 3,000 deaths so far during Israel's bombardment of Gaza. But all this follows the Hamas slaughter of 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, and the capture of around 200 hostages. This cycle of violence raises this question. How far can Israel go to eliminate Hamas? There's international law, and one of its jobs is to reduce the number of civilian casualties. Samuel Moyne is a professor of human rights law and history at Yale University. Well, Sam, what's the answer? You can't shoot at a civilian and aim to kill him or her. You also have limits on the number of civilians you can harm collaterally. That's where the murkiness comes in. My president, Joe Biden, has said that Israel has to obey these laws of war, presumably, including that rule. And Israel has always said it obeys the laws of war. But when you have a civilian population living cheek by jowl with the enemy, in some cases being used as human shields by that enemy, the question really is, can you kill that many civilians in the name of your military objective? And there's just a lot of controversy about what exactly the limit is. You mentioned there, Sam, that Hamas uses many of the citizens of Gaza as human shields. Should Israel be deterred by that? I think so, because... Those people, at least in the framework we're operating with, are still innocent civilians. The fact that Hamas operate in this little piece of land where there's unavoidably dense civilian presence, and indeed that Hamas might use civilians to hide amongst, I don't think it relieves Israel from the obligation to take those civilian lives seriously and conduct its calculus of whether its particular military advantage in any attack really does outweigh the likelihood of civilian harms. Now, someone might say, well, that means that Israel can't ever attack because Mm -hmm. Hamas is going to operate in ways that raise the levels of likely harm from any Israeli attack, such that it outweighs any military objective. I guess I would respond, well, that's a situation in which Israel involved was involved in creating. This is a tiny piece of land. It's been under de facto or even according to some de jure occupation for so long. I'm not sure we should want to have the view that Hamas's activity should allow Israel to leave the moral high ground when it comes to protecting civilians. Hmm. It has to fight consistent with these rules or it has to explain why not. The uneven playing ground in one sense, though, Sam, is that Israel is a properly constituted state. I know it's the subject of enormous contention and it is a deeply imperfect state. But Hamas, does it have some out clause here? Because um, Hamas is not a recognised government. It it has a very well-organised militant force, but it's not a properly constituted army. Can it be held responsible in the same way as Israel? The legal framework never captures the morality of situations perfectly. 
yet we say it's going to guide us. And in this case, the legal framework says you never have an excuse to target civilians or kill too many collaterally. And the nature of your enemy doesn't provide you an excuse. My country lived through this, where after 9-11, George W. Bush said the nature of the enemy excuses us from these obligations. And the verdict of history is that Americans made an enormous mistake in just ignoring the rules. The same, I think, is going to be true of Israel if it ignores the rules. Now, the deeper trouble, as we've discussed, is that Israel is going to have enormous temptation not to break the rules, which it's unlikely to say it's doing, but to bend them so far that very few people believe that it's taking its obligation seriously. And the results are going to be even greater isolation of Israel and the international community than it's already you know, undergone. Is there a difference in international law, Sam, between dropping a bomb knowing full well that, and forgive the the brutal explicitness here, but knowing full well that innocent people, including children, will be torn apart and cold-blooded slaughter of people close up. I'm talking about shooting people in their beds, stabbing them, hacking them, burning them to death. Does international law make a distinction between those two types of killing of innocents? Absolutely. We have to think through how they're different as well as similar. I mean, in the end, they're killing. And if we're pacifists or something like that, we say it's all abhorrent. Or if we say there's only a political solution in this situation and murder doesn't advance things, murder on one side or the other is equal. But what Hamas did according to international law, was to break the first rule, which was they directly targeted civilians. And it's true, they did so in a precise way from close up. In theory, at least, according to what it's saying, when Israel drops a bomb, it's not directly targeting civilians. It's at risk of breaking not the first rule, but the second rule, which is that it can't kill too many civilians collaterally. I would like that second rule to be a lot stronger because think about it, it condemns Hamas for doing, in the end, less killing than Israel has already done because it can claim that it's not directly targeting civilians, just killing them collaterally. And yet, the flexibility of that second rule, which prohibits collateral killing, is one that allows greater infliction of harm. So you begin to wonder, is this the right way we should be thinking using this legal framework, which maybe distracts us from what's really going on as much as it helps hold states to account? What about morally, Sam? Because you're not just a human rights lawyer, you're also a legal philosopher. And I just wonder if there are some people who might be wrestling with this and and sort of rationalising that there's a difference between killing innocent people, you know, certainly recklessly with a bomb and the kind of up-close sadistic slaughter that we saw from Hamas. I don't know if there's a difference, a real difference, but I imagine some people might think there could be. There is some difference, but remember, 
it's only one side that can engage in the less sadistic practice of dropping bombs from on high. And Hmm. because I don't want to talk about Israel exclusively, you know, my country in places like Korea and Vietnam could get very sadistic dropping bombs from on high, Hmm. Um, in part because when you're claiming to target only combatants, when they're living in close quarters with civilians, what is even the meaning of saying you're only killing civilians collaterally? You are, in, from a moral perspective, aiming your bombs at civilians. To me, the moral issues really lie elsewhere because from a moral point of view, everyone around the world is in some way complicit in this ongoing injustice, which is two peoples fighting They're not equally powerful. The suffering is not equal over all of these decades. As an international community, we have to think if we're taking morality seriously, how do we promote a political solution to this ongoing contention rather than focus narrowly when violence occurs at keeping it within bounds? I notice that uh, Joe Biden has um, said that he thinks uh, Israel mounting a ground invasion and then an occupation, a reoccupation of Gaza would be a very bad idea. But wouldn't an occupation of Gaza, maybe not uh, endless, but an actual occupation, reoccupation of Gaza, also force Israel, though, to actually take responsibility because if it has had Gaza under siege in inverted commas for the last 20 or so years, now it's forced to manage Gaza. I see your point, but remember that according to mainstream international lawyers, the Gaza is already under occupation just from a kind of external perspective. Access to the territory, including from the sea, all of the goods and services that enter, which I've seen at the Gaza border, water, gasoline, are controlled by Israel already. Everyone knows this. So what you're really talking about is not reoccupation, but just the physical presence of Israeli troops on a day-to-day basis. If you think that in the eyes of the world that would make clearer than now who's ultimately responsible, I see your point. What I'm worried about is that it would lead to more killing of ordinary people, more Israeli death, at least of soldiers, and would not take us anywhere closer to a kind of political solution to this decades-long you know, strife. Just finally, Sam, what would happen if Israel was to somehow lift this fellow Yahya Sinwar, who is the leader of Hamas, perhaps when he was uh, visiting Qatar or, or somewhere like that, and bring him to Israel for trial? I think it would be really interesting. Right now, multiple Israeli officials have basically said he's a dead man walking. It would have to be seen as something different from a show trial but it would be a criminal law approach to the problem of terrorism that most states have refused, including the United States after 9-11, which famously called its policy a war on terror, really kind of on the Israeli model. Alternatives to that model are not popular, in part because it's very hard to capture criminals of that kind. But if it could be done, 
in the way it was done with Adolf Eichmann, it would be a very different path, although it would be a difficult one and strewn with hazards. Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale University, one of the world's top philosophers of law, also a historian. Thank you very much for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. Thanks for having me, Andrew. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.